Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Welcome everybody. I'm Wouter Den Haan. I'm a professor here at the, the London School of Economics. It's my pleasure to introduce our speakers, Dr. Jack Manning and uh, Rupa Patel. Um, they're both senior economists at the Bank of England. Uh, Rupal joined in 2013, and she has worked on a variety of important topics like Brexit, COVID, and currently the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And actually, Rupal has uh, been in this room, I think, taking EC413 when I taught it. Uh, <clears throat> and, and she you know, successfully completed the program, the MSc program. Uh, Jack's research focuses on the empirical and theoretical investiga- investigation of unconventional monetary policies, employing, among other things, time series, panel, and DSD methods. I don't think he's going to talk about those <laughs> this evening. Not today. Uh, and they're also not in the book, so uh, you're lucky about that. Uh, he has also conducted research into central bank digital currency. And at the Bank of England, he has also uh, advised two chief economists. And he got his PhD from the University of Kent. <clears throat> uh, so both are keen about improving economic literacy. And that's why I think they've written this book. And it's an important contribution in doing that. Uh, And before I give the floor to our two speakers, there's a couple administrative issues I should mention. Uh, They will talk for 40 minutes. And then after that, there's a chance to ask questions. And I'll tell you how that goes when they're done with their 40 minutes. For those of you who are using Twitter, it's gone. <laughs> uh, it, uh, the, the, the handle is, I think, LSE Bank of England. And given the number of MPC members that have served on the MPC, LSE members that have served on the MPC will serve on the MPC because we have one more coming in September. This is that having that handle, LSE Bank of England, is not a bad one. Uh, it is recorded. Uh, and if nothing uh, fails in terms of the technique, it's just that it should be available as a podcast. And, um, and I think that's it. So for now, I'm delighted to give the floor to our two speakers. Thank you, Valter. Uh, it's an honor to be here at the LSE tonight. Uh, as Valter said, Jack and I have spent hours in this lecture hall alone uh, as young economists, as students, but also I used to come here to public lectures just like this with my school friend, Clemmy and her dad, who's actually in the audience tonight. Uh, so, you know, it's quite strange being on this side of the stage. Uh, and what a stage it is. It's hosted some of the most influential economists of our time. Uh, just a few days ago, there was a Nobel Prize winner talking here, but tonight you have to put up with Patel uh, meaning. And uh, we're not here to talk to you about some revolutionary new economic theory or a new paradigm shift. Um, no, not at all, but uh, we are economists and we believe in the idea of comparative advantage. And so we're going to talk to you about Beanie Babies, men's underwear and smoked mackerel. Uh, and hopefully all of this will become clear once we're finished. Fingers crossed. Um, so, yeah, you see, where we want to start is that economics in general has a problem. 
Um, all of us that have kind of come here tonight, that have spent our time studying economics, thinking about economics, we all understand that economics is a powerful way to think about and affect the world. And that it has important implications for absolutely everybody's daily life, every single day, whatever they're doing. Um, but the problem is, more people outside of that world don't understand that very important point. More than half of the population say that they don't understand some very basic economic principles, such as inflation and GDP and how they're measured. And even though it's really important to them and they say they want to learn more, they say it's completely inaccessible and some even dare to go as far as to say it's boring. Now, why is this? Well, part of the problem sits with us economists. We haven't been able to get across really important messages like that economics can increase your lifetime earnings, so it can make you wealthier. It can increase your life expectancy, so better understanding of economics is associated with higher lifetime earnings. Um, and uh, it can even give you better scores, it's associated with better scores on well-being indices. So for the sake of spending some time learning some economics, you can end up happier, healthier, and wealthier, which for a book that retails at $14.99 is not a, not a bad thing. <laughs> um, but for a long time, economics has been hidden behind complicated algebra, Greek and Latin symbols. Um, and we as economists have spoken an economic language that we will understand to each other. Um, and that has been very bad at excluding people that don't yet speak that language. Um, that's why in our book, what we've tried to do is take out all that jargon. We've tried to remove all of the equations and the graphs. I think actually when we reviewed it back, one equation slipped through, but it had, it had the same number of letters in it as a Wordle. And given how Wordle has kind of taken off, we think the general public can probably handle that. Um, but in general, we've tried to move out all of that jargon um, and try to show why economics is, is relevant to people's daily lives. Now, to give you a case in point, the title of the book, Can't We Just Print More Money, is drawn from a policy that the Bank of England has been doing called quantitative easing. Now, in the general narrative, this is a, a meme that kind of makes the point, the general narrative, people think of quantitative easing as simply printing money. So this is the chairman of the Fed throwing out money. Now, if you get into a conversation with an economist or a group of economists that really study quantitative easing, their initial reaction is, well, actually, no money has been printed at all. We don't do that anymore. Who makes physical notes like that? We just add in numbers to a screen. So first of all, you're completely wrong. There's no money printing. And then they'll very quickly descend into this complex conversation around imperfect substitutable um, assets and duration being drawn from publicly available supplies of markets or commitments to previously time inconsistent paths for monetary policy, all of which, if you're not somebody that studied a PhD in it, will probably quite rightly make you play over before you've got to the word imperfect substitutability. So that just makes the whole thing very opaque. But the problem is, is that quantitative easing policy that we at the Bank of England and other banks around the world have done has very tangible and real world impacts on the lives of millions of people around the world. And so it's of first order importance that they really understand why we've done it, how we've done it, and what the impact of it will be on their lives. And this inability for economists to communicate in a way that's relevant and resonates with us all is not without consequence. 
economics has been practiced and is unpracticed and is understood by a very narrow proportion of society. To prove this point, take a while to picture who you think of when you think of an economist. You might think of someone who's male, perhaps in their 50s or 60s, perhaps white uh, and from an upper to middle class background. If you did think of this person, you're not the only one. So these drawings here show um, from a competition where children were asked to draw what they thought an economist looked like. And uh, we didn't show you all the pictures, but all of them were exclusively of men. They all look pretty old and they look <laughs> like they're obsessed with money. And the thing is, that's not too far from the truth. Economics has a clear diversity problem. You know, there's underrepresentation of women, underrepresentation of those from lower socioeconomic backgrounds and women too. But it's not just at institutions like the London School of Economics or the Bank of England. It starts off at schools. So we know that three times as many boys go on to study A levels, um, economics at A level than girls. We also know that twice as many private school children study economics at A level than state school. And there's an underrepresentation of ethnic minorities as well. So you might ask yourself, why does this actually matter? Well, it matters because economists are the ones that decide basically a lot of things that matter to your day-to-day -day lives. They come up with economic policies, policies like which determine how much a mortgage might be next year or whether taxes go up or down. But if those policies only reflect lived experiences or points of view from those narrow people from that narrow portion of society, then those policies might only, impact, um, might only work for that proportion of society. And then you get a society which doesn't work very well. But it's not just that. This sort of lack of diversity also means that fewer people want to be engaged in economics. So there's a great story that we use in the book of someone that we met called Charlene Maines. So she found herself unemployed for quite a few years and comes from a lower socioeconomic background where no one she really knew understood economics or the economy. But she found herself unwillingly at one of our outreach events that the Bank of England do and learned a lot more about economics and found that she had basically known about the economy all the time, the whole time, but she just called it different things. And she used this knowledge to then go on to study more about economics and now has started up her own charity to help unemployed people. And she's even more politically engaged, which she hadn't done before, and is also running for local councillor. So this story proves that economics can really change people's lives, but also can make society better and work for, for everyone. And so the story of Charlene is a really interesting one. Um, and it's one that's echoed through a lot of the outreach programs we've done. So the bank has really realized the importance of, of this type of work um, in the last few years. And so we've held a whole range of outreach and education programs of which this book that we're talking about today is just one. Um, so we tried to get ourselves outside the walls of Threadneedle Street and even, dare I say, it, outside of the city of London. Um, and we've held a whole range of different things to help people engage, whatever their background, their age or their interests. So this first picture here where you can see a group of people is one of our citizens panels that we've held up and down the country from Land's End to John O'Groats. And we invite the public to come in and talk to us. And it's really important because it's not just us going and telling people about economics, it's us going to listen to how people think about economics and then feed back into us. So just like Charlene came along and realized that a lot of the things she was already discussing and thinking about were economics. These events have been really important for people up and down the country to have that same realization. 
We've also put together a whole load of things for students at schools. So as Rupal said, we already see that people are getting turned off from economics at that early part of the whole process. And so the bank together with Bino has put together a whole series of educational things around money and financial literacy so that students in primary schools can learn how to manage their pocket money and grow up and already be engaged with the economic world around them. And then we put together a set of teaching aids for secondary schools, um, which we call economy. And that is basically giving basic principles of economics to students in secondary schools. So by the time they're getting to make the decisions about A-levels or whether to go into university, they already get the relevance of economics. And this book is obviously a large part of that outreach program that we're doing now um, to try and get people to understand that relevance. So we've structured our book, Can't We Just Spend More Money, around 10 questions and questions that we've been asked during, you know, when we've been out speaking to people at outreach events, but also just things that friends and family have asked us. Things like, why are all my clothes made in Asia? Why am I richer than my great-great-grandma? And even, why can't we just spend money? We've also heard you loud and clear that economists need to do better at communicating this stuff. So we've tried to make it more fun and accessible by using case studies and examples which everyone can relate to. So instead of talking about the relative merits of industrial action, we talk about a Simpsons episode where Homer and his friends go on strike and are replaced by killer robots. This also helps us to explain automation and technological progress. We also, instead of talking about inelastic demand for a good, uh, we talk about a, kind of a deadly bug that falls inside your brain and the pharmaceutical company, which has the cure and how they can hike up the price because everyone will pay anything to get a bug out of their brain. And we hope by doing this, we can show people that economics can be fun and entertaining, but also it can be for everyone. And to make it even more accessible, the Bank of England are using the proceeds from the sale to send a book to every secondary school in the country so that every child can hope, so we can inspire a whole new generation of economists that will hopefully help influence the economy and economics to work for everyone. So that's kind of the pitch, right, about why economics matters and is relevant. Although it's maybe more for the kind of the future young RuPaul's that are on the, the kind of the internet watching this now as opposed to people that have self-selected to be in the room and to hear a bit. But given we have everyone's attention for a little bit, we thought what we might do is delve into a couple of the chapters that we have in the book, a couple of the questions that we have, just to show you how you can approach economics in a slightly different language, in a slightly different way, to make it a little bit more interesting. So we're going to delve into a couple of questions, but I'm going to start with a question broadly for the room. And I don't think anyone's mic'd up, but do feel free to, to shout out. If anyone can tell me what these three things, or sorry, these things here, all have in common. Yeah, go over that side. That is exactly right. So everything up on this screen, <laughs> we've got a gold bar in a bag, by the way, to be able to give you on the way out. <laughs> everything on this screen has been used somewhere in the world at some point in history as a form of money. So in the Solomon Islands, they used not human teeth, but dolphin teeth. Um, as a form of money. Um, the fish are actually dried mackerel, which were used in prisons in the United States when they couldn't get actual hard currency in, they would use dried mackerel, something that would last and could get past the guards. Um, in fact, actually some of the prisoners got so attached to it that they started to build up supplies of dried mackerel when they were out of prison, just so they had savings in case they ever went back in. <laughs> That's some board planning and a lack of faith in the justice system. <laughs> Um, cocoa beans were obviously used by the Incas and the Aztecs, and in some instances, 
actually had more value than gold. So when the Europeans turned up and thought the shiny rock line around is quite interesting, actually they were all about the chocolate. Um, and then we have the rye stones from the Yap Islands. So islanders there in this Pacific island would take their canoes across a pretty treacherous stretch of water, get these huge stones and bring them back. And sometimes the stones would fall off the boats into the water, sit at the bottom of this estuary, and they would still have value as money. People would still be able to kind of know who owned that stone. On the far side of the slide, we have cowrie shells. So cowrie shells quite like teeth, hard, durable. You can carry a load in your pocket or around uh, your neck on a piece of string. And they were used um, for a long time as a form of money instead of coins. And obviously bringing things a little bit more up to date, most of the money we use these days, although we like to think about banknotes, is actually just zeros and ones on a computer screen. So all of these things have been used as money, um, but they do have a few things in common. And so we have to think, what is it that draws all of these things together that we would think about these as money? And the truth is, as economists, we don't really have a very clear and well-defined way of putting money down in definition. We tend to define it by the things that it can do. So an item that wants to be money, or at least a good form of money, needs to be uh, a good unit of account. So that means that the prices of all the other things in your economy should be written in this one thing. So when you go to the supermarket, what you don't see is, um, you know, 10 bananas equals five onions equals six strawberries equals half a pint of milk. You don't have to then do all of those cross prices and try and work out all the different prices. What you see is, well, this is worth 10p, this is worth a pound. Therefore, actually, it's pretty easy to work out 10 of those equals one of those. Right? So this saves us as an economy a whole load of hassle. It makes the whole thing more efficient. These things are also useful because they need to be a good store of value. So money needs to be a way for you to reliably move your ability to buy things from now to the future. It's a time machine for your purchasing power. Right? And so something that isn't a very good form of money, for instance, would be bananas. Bananas would be easily exchangeable. You could carry them around. If we decided to price everything in bananas, great. But then imagine you're trying to save up for your summer holidays. You just put a couple of bananas beside every week. And then you get to June and you take them to the uh, travel agent and you say, here's my savings. And it's just a pile of money. So in that sense, it's not a very good store of value. Um, and the last thing we need, which is the most fundamental, is it needs to be a medium of exchange. So you need to know, I will give it to someone and they will give me something back. And that's ultimately the, the most fundamental um, feature that money has. So given those things, let's bring it kind of slightly more up to date and see if anyone can answer why most economists would assume that this, based on that definition, is not money. For those of you that don't know, which I assume is almost nobody in this room, that <laughs> is the symbol for Bitcoin, um, which is probably the most famous of the crypto, and I will use the term cryptocurrencies as a, a starting term, um, that have gained a lot of popularity and notoriety in recent years. Um, but for economists, we wouldn't turn this, or most economists wouldn't turn this a currency. This is a crypto asset. So this is not a form of money. And if we go back to those principles I just described, those defining features, it becomes pretty quick that you can see why. So is Bitcoin, for instance, a good medium of exchange? Well, I can't take my Bitcoin to the local supermarket. There are some places I've heard on bits of the dark web where you can go and use it to pay for things. 
Um, but in general, most people aren't doing their weekly shop um, and accepting their groceries in Bitcoin. Um, is it a good store of value? Well, anyone that's followed crypto markets in the last week or so will know that something that can be double its price one day and then half its price or zero the next day is not a good way for you to carry your ability to spend into the future. So these assets are hugely volatile in their prices. Um, and is it the unit of account? Well, no, again, I'm yet to kind of go into uh, a supermarket and see everything priced in Bitcoin. So unfortunately for Bitcoin and for people that want to think of it as money, in its current form, most economists would say it's not. That said, you know, it works very well as a speculative asset. Lots of people um, are very behind it. So we take no investment advice here. Um, but as we've seen, lots of different things have been money through history. And economists love the history of money. So I thought I would indulge my own preferences here and kind of go back a little bit. But it's quite a frustrating journey to take. Um, Keynes, John Maynard Keynes, when he tried to think about the origins of money, he described that period of his life as the Babylonian madness because he spent so long trying to unpick where money had come from and why it had sprung up. But it has repeatedly sprung up through human civilization since human civilization started. So here we can see on the first picture a tablet from um, ancient Mesopotamia, Samaria, um, from what's one of the first recorded forms of money. So essentially what happened here is people used to trade in grain. So you'd have lots of bags of grain and you would have to carry them around and give them to someone else if you wanted to trade with them. And then people realized, well, that's quite a lot of effort. So they put them in a grain bank, which was just a place to go and put their grain. And then if you wanted to trade, somebody could go and get your bag of grain, they could move it to their grain bank, and you did a transfer essentially. But then they realized, well, that's still a lot of hassle. I don't want to have to keep lugging my bag of grain around. So now I would just keep a track of who owns that piece of grain. And then they essentially developed a ledger onto tablets that kept a record of whose grain in each of these banks was worth what was owned by whom. And if that feels familiar, then it should, because that's the same underlying technology, big spreadsheet or big stone, um, keeping track of who has what value in their account. That's the same underlying technology that we use for deposit accounts now. We fast forward a few thousand years from ancient uh, Mesopotamia to London in the 17th century. And we see a very similar process going on. So people were transferring their gold around. But rather than having to pay to protect the gold themselves, they would just stick it in with some goldsmiths in streets not too far from here. Um, and the goldsmiths would give them a receipt. And then if they wanted to do a trade and pay for something, they could go get that, take that receipt to the goldsmith, get their gold and pay. But again, they very quickly realized this is a very inefficient way of doing this. I'll just give you the receipt and you can go and pick up the gold when you want. But then nobody needed to ever go pick up the gold or very rarely did they need to do it. So they just passed around the receipt. <laughs> and those receipts should seem familiar because they became the banknotes that we now use day in, day out, or at least a lot of us do. Um, so this process of having some commodity behind the value of money and then realizing that's an inefficient way of working so that you then ditch it has kind of been repeated and seen time and time again through history. Um, so where are we with money now? Well, if you take a five pound note and this famous promise to pay the bearer the sum of, that's not a promise to get a claim on some gold. The Bank of England has 400,000 bars of gold in our vault. And we sit above it every day at work. 
Um, we're not allowed to eat our packed lunch on top of it, but um, it's all there, but not a single bar of that backs up a banknote in your pocket. It's just not there anymore. The promise is to pay you more of the same. And in fact, actually, most money we use in the modern economy is not even a claim on us at the Bank of England. You can't even definitively go and say, give me more of the same. It's a claim on a private institution, a very particular type of private institution that we're all familiar with, namely a bank, but it's a claim on a bank. And so it has value because you trust that that bank will be able to keep you safe. And you trust, hopefully, that that bank will help to keep you safe because people like us at the Bank of England are helping to keep the bank safe. So we've moved a very long way from having solid gold and back up our money. And who knows where money will go in the future. Um, but to take a step back from all of this, there's one last secret that I think I will kind of leave, with you, or leave you with um, on this bit of money and our journey here. And that is that the one thing that connects all of these is trust. The reason there was gold behind notes was because it, uh, it gave you trust. The reason why people could work with stones in the Yap Islands is because they trusted one another, to be honest with it. And so institutions like the Bank of England, like us, we're there to try and maintain that trust. Whether it's trying to keep inflation and the price rises in the economy at a rate that means that the value of this banknote stays pretty stable through time, or whether it's keeping the banks that have the privilege of being able to create money in the economy safe and stable, all of that is designed to make sure that you trust the money that we have. And when that trust breaks down, it can cause an economic crash and ripple across the whole economy and impact our day-to-day -day lives. So back in 2008, the Queen herself opened this very building we're in here now, the new academic building. Uh, and when she was going round, she asked a group of economists a question which most of us in the nation were asking ourselves. Why did no one see the financial crash coming? Now, if we were there on that day, we would have said to the Queen, well, it's complicated. You see, the average person will live through around eight economic crashes during their lifetime. That's twice as many as the average person will move house. But depending on how old you are, you'll know that new, no two economic crashes are the same and they, both, uh, they all have different impacts on the economy and our lives. So take, for example, the, uh, the stock market crash in 1929. So the stock market fell and led to one of the worst recessions on record, the Great Depression. And the impacts were felt far and wide. It wasn't just the bankers on Wall Street, but it affected millions of people around the globe. Now, if you flash forward to 1987, the stock market crashed again, this time even more so than it did in 1929. However, not many people were affected and the UK economy actually boomed for a bit after that. So what actually causes these crashes? Well, it can be many things. It can be rising interest rates, high inflation, pandemics, wars, sound familiar, uh, but uh, jokes aside, economic crashes uh, can be caused by loads of things, but the most common are financial crashes, and particularly those that are caused by speculative bubbles. Now, for those that you don't know, speculative bubbles happen when people act a bit crazy. So economists call that irrational exuberance, and that's when people get carried away. 
people start investing things or buying things just because they think the price of that thing will keep going up. And because they keep buying it, it does go up, or at least for a little while. But one day, everyone realizes they paid a bit too much for that thing, and they start selling it or they stop buying it. And the price comes crashing down, and everyone holding on to that thing loses money, and it can ripple across the economy and cause a downturn. Um, my, so you might have heard of uh, bubbles in the stock markets or in the housing markets, but they happen outside of these things too. And one of my favorite examples is the Beanie Baby bubble. So for those of you who don't know, a Beanie Baby is a teddy bear, which costs around five pounds usually. But back in the early 2000s, lots of people started to think some of them were rare. And so started buying them up as investments. And because they bought them, the price went up and it went up quite a lot. Some of them were selling for about £5,000 on eBay. And this was a prime example of irrational exuberance. People went insane. So there was a Beanie Baby smuggling ring. There was also a Beanie Baby bandit who stole thousands of pounds worth of teddy bears who ended up being a man in his 80s. Um, and children even got crushed at stampedes in shopping centers where people thought that rare teddy bears were being sold. But my favorite example of irrational exuberance is shown in this uh, picture over here. It shows a couple splitting up what they thought were investments, but they're just beanie babies in a divorce court in Las Vegas. So as you can see, it was, uh, it was pretty crazy. But a lot of people made money. So the owner of Beanie Babies, or the company that made them, TY, uh, became really, really rich. I think he was became like the 800th or 877th richest man in the world. Um, and funnily enough, we were doing a similar talk at a literary festival a few weekends ago. And a man came up to us and told us that he'd made his fortune in Beanie Babies here in the UK. So much so that he'd actually bought his house in cash uh, and he recalls other people kind of doing, you know, also making quite a lot of money. He said that some of his friends were driving to Germany with bagfuls of teddy bears and meeting dodgy people in car parks who would hand them a wad of cash, which then they would then transport or smuggle it, smuggle the teddy bears to the US, uh, which I'm sure was part of the smuggling ring that I spoke about earlier. So it was all a bit crazy at the time. But as we know, with all specters of bubbles, what goes up must eventually come down. And people soon realized that Beanie Babies aren't worth as much as they paid for them. They were actually only worth about five pounds. And anyone holding on to them lost a lot of money. And actually, quite a few families lost money. And one family even lost about £100,000 and ended up homeless from Beanie Babies alone. Now, luckily enough, this bubble bursting didn't spread out to the rest of the economy. It was quite contained. But as we know with the financial crisis in 2008, that's not true, and it's probably impacted all our lives here. But there are some weirder ways that financial downturns can actually impact us, which I'll talk you through now. So one of the first things that happens in downturn is that people lose confidence in the economy. So they stop buying things. And one of the weirder things that people stop buying is actually men's underwear. So it's proven that men's underwear sales actually fall during downturn as men put off buying underwear as long as possible. Um, and you think this is a bit strange, but actually Alan Greenspan, who is, well, used to be the chairman of the US Central Bank, it was his favorite way of uh, gauging the health of the US economy. So 
Um, and when people stop buying things, uh, businesses close down. So you might all remember HMV closing down, Woolworths closing down, or furniture shop DFS. What fewer people know is that all the Iceland, the country Iceland, uh, McDonald, all the McDonald's closed down. So they experienced a really big financial crisis, just like the one here in the UK. And their local currency, the krona, plummeted against all other currencies, making it really expensive to import like the meats and the potatoes that we needed in their Happy Meals. And so they had to close down. But luckily, one man bought the last uh, Big Mac prize in Iceland that was sold and has enshrined it in a glass case in a museum in Iceland. And there's a live stream link, which you can still watch, uh, watch it rolls. And so this is a, a snapshot from a few days ago, actually. And even 15 years on, it doesn't look as bad as you think it should do. So I don't know what that says about McDonald's. But it's not just uh, that men go around wearing worn-out underwear or that you can't buy a burger in Iceland anymore. Uh, recessions impact us all. They impact our lifestyle, our moods, and even our relationships. So we know that you're more likely to have a heart attack during a downturn, that men are more likely to commit suicide during a downturn, and that you're more likely to get divorced. A lot of couples find that they can't handle the financial strain. So if crashes are so bad, why doesn't anyone try to stop them? The thing is, we economists try to, but it's really difficult. You see, predicting what's going to happen to the economy is like predicting the weather. So meteorologists are really good at knowing about when seasons change. They know when it's summer, they know when it's winter. They're also very good at now predicting about when it's going to rain. But I'm sure all of us here have stepped outside without an umbrella because it's been predicted to be clear skies and been blindsided by a downpour. Similarly, economists are very good at predicting general trends in the economy. They know when the economy is going to expand, when it's going to contract. But we've also been blindsided by shocks that we didn't think were coming. And when economists, just like meteorologists, get it wrong, we can get it very wrong. So you all might know Michael Fish, who back in the 1980s failed to warn us of one of the worst hurricanes to have ever hit the UK. So this hurricane caused several people to die. It caused widespread destruction around the UK. Well, Bank of England also had its own Michael Fish moment, but in 2007, when it failed to predict the financial crisis. And funnily enough, they actually predicted around 5% growth that year. And they were very wrong. And we all know that now. Um, but luckily, it's not, well, it's not lucky. It's not the first time and it's not the last time that economists will get it wrong. It's actually they get it wrong most of the time. So economists have failed to predict about 147 out of the 153 crashes that have happened since the 1990s globally. But luckily for all of us here, us policymakers have a lot of tools in our toolbox to help us influence the economy, whether it's dealing with a crash or just keeping the economy ticking over. And we talk about these in our book, one of them being printing money when it's necessary. But we hope by people reading our book that they'll understand where crashes come from and how to deal with them, particularly if you're going to experience that ace in your lifetime. So, yeah, hopefully understanding financial crashes, why they happen, why we can't predict them, is a way that you can help engage and navigate through the next set of crashes that come, and they will inevitably come, whether it's today, tomorrow, in years to come. Um, and so, you know, that just goes to show why this is all so important. But it's not just financial crashes. It's not just understanding money. 
This is about how inflation infects everybody's lives, um, about things like why people are able to get jobs or aren't able to get jobs. Um, and having a really good understanding of economics will help you navigate all of those different things better. And it's not or should not be just the preserve of economists like us and people that have self-selected to engage with economics, like people in this room that have the ability to access that. We need to make this as widely as accessible and open to as many people as possible. And that is the message I think we would really like to leave you with, is that economics is for everybody. And actually, when you start to think about it, and hopefully through what we've said today, you'll realize that actually everyone is essentially an economist and is part of the economy. And therefore, we hope everyone will engage a little bit more. Thank you. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ ask social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question. Like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Thank you both. They predicted that they would talk for roughly 40 minutes, and they did, which actually is incredibly rare that speakers actually stick to you know, the time they predict to speak. So th thanks for that. So now there is the opportunity to ask questions. Uh, we'll try to collect a few. Uh, there's two things which are important. State your name, that makes it a, a bit more personal. And the second, to make sure that everybody can uh, hear your question, also the people online. If you have a microphone in front of you, is you can turn it on by pressing the button. Uh, and if you don't have a microphone in front of you, then wait for one of the stewards to hand you a microphone. So before I'll see whether there's some questions online, I'd like to start in the audience. This is your chance. There's a question over there. And then question in the back. Are economists better at spotting bubbles than they are spotting re recessions? Yeah, thank you very much for the presentation. Your book is explicitly educational. I was wondering if you could maybe talk a bit about the virtues of being ignorant about economic affairs as much as you can be about educated, as much as you can be educated about it. Perhaps one more. It's over there. Okay, just go ahead. Yep. Hi, I wanted to um, ask, I wonder when you try and make economics more accessible, what, how much of that is a struggle when you see the media taking things out of context? I was thinking particularly around Andrew Bailey's comments recently about how people should try moderate wage increases and see the response of that. To quite a conventional economic term about a wage price spiral, does it become hard to make it accessible if things can get twisted quite easily? I can take the first one. I can say the question about uh, whether economists are better at spotting problems than recessions. So you're right. So one of the issues um, during the financial crisis, which um, the LSE actually responded to the Queen's question and a group of economists answered, and they talked about why people did, why they didn't spot the crisis, and that was because economists didn't draw the links between different parts of the economy. And um, economists have got really good at this. We at the Bank of England have started doing a lot more of it. And that should help spot problems about when risks are building up in the economy. It should hopefully help us spot them before they get too bad and they cause recessions. 
I'm going to switch to the other side of the room first and then come up here because I couldn't, I couldn't quite hear the question. Um, or maybe I'm displaying ignorance, but uh, we'll, we'll come back. Um, just on the, the kind of the difficulty of kind of simplifying it for, for media. I mean, I think the first bit is about how you kind of simplify and make it accessible whilst making sure it's still correct. So there's like this translation exercise that I think both RuPaul and I found really interesting, right? Is trying to make sure you need to really understand something to make sure you're not losing something important when you, when you simplify it. Um, and so that was kind of the, the big challenge. In terms of like what I think is implied in your second question, which is using the media as a filter. Um, now, part of that is we shouldn't be naive enough to think that we don't live in a world where that happens and we should um, think about how we present ideas in a balanced way. It's on us to try and present them in a balanced way, but not naively thinking they're not going to kind of get picked up and, and kind of taken. So it's on us essentially for that. But the other thing is the world is changing. How we communicate um, how people consume their information, how they learn is changing. And so the need to have a filter through the media is actually nowhere near as big as it would have been, say, 20, 30 years ago. Right? So we can now directly reach, and the bank is doing things, and other central banks around the world are doing some brilliant things about bypassing that, to go straight to TikTok or um, like straight through social media or to run podcasts or all of those. And you're then setting the filter and setting the agenda. And the more people that kind of do that and do it in a very kind of honest and open and like uh, with integrity, the, the kind of the more you do that. If anyone hasn't checked out the Jamaican central bank's rap about central bank independence and inflation, you definitely should. <laughs> like even in the hallowed walls of Threadneedle Street in London, that gets a lot of time. Um, it's definitely worth it. Um, can we maybe get the one at the back again? Your book dwells on the importance of learning about the economy and learning about how bubbles and crashes and whatnot work. Is there an advantage, do you think, to being ignorant of some things as, in economics as opposed to if, if we knew everything about the economy at all times, would that not generate some form of crashes and panics of themselves? I mean, if I, if I knew the balance sheet of my bank every day, you can be certain that I'll be checking that all the time. And that might make banks and runs and whatnot much more vulnerable and more likely to occur. So I think partly, so one of the things that a lot of people don't know about, which we talk about in the book, is that there's nothing underlying currency, right? So it's what Jack talks about, so it's trust. And I think if, but in the book, we also go on to explain that, you, you know, right now the banknote is backed by the Bank of England. And if you know how the Bank of England works and you trust them, then it, then it should be okay. Right? Yeah, I mean, I, I would kind of add to that, right? Like understanding economics doesn't change human nature. What you're describing there is a lot about human nature, right? Like the, the kind of animal spirits, as John Maynard Keynes would have called them, about panics and exuberance and all these things. But understanding it can help you think, I mean, some people it might make them calmer, but for others it might just make them think, well, this is a thing that needs to be fixed. We need to find solutions to this. And therefore having that kind of knowledge, taking away that ignorance, we might build systems that are better able to kind of withstand that. So I'm not quite sure I, I agree with that as a, as a concept. I think human nature will be what it is, but like, if we understand a bit more economics, we might also understand a bit more about how to, to work within that. All right, let me uh, give you some time to think about questions and first do a couple of questions which were asked online. Um, 
Let me start with a, an excellent question by Andrew Lowe. What's the answer to the question that's on the book? Can't we just print more money? Um, and then the second question is by Geoffrey Thomas. Um, and he asks, you know, isn't a lot of what happens uh, in the real world in terms of economic transactions, it, isn't that just a transfer from one to another as opposed to really creating wealth? And then uh, finally, a challenging question by Lydia Ebden. Um, and she points out is that, which is true, which is that even we economists don't understand everything, is that why do you want ordinary people to invest in understanding? So, <laughs> on, uh, on printing money. So uh, the simple answer is that printing money causes inflation. So you might think having more money or more banknotes in your wallet might mean that you can buy more things. But when you have more banknotes in circulation in the, in the economy, they're actually worth less. And so you can buy fewer things with them. And that's why you can't keep on printing money to get out of your problems. Yeah. So, you know, for the Bank of England, when we've printed money, it's because we think that inflation is going to be too low. And then when you think it's going to be too high, you rein back in on that. Right. So it's, it's a bit of a, a balance and a tightrope. And we can we go in in the book. There's a whole chapter kind of explaining exactly that tightrope that policymakers are, are trying to walk um, on the transfers, not wealth creation. I mean, just just the way in which that is kind of termed as a question will seem slightly strange to someone that doesn't have any kind of economic understanding, right? And so I think it's, it's a valid point. Like a lot of economic activity is about transferring wealth from some people to another. And that has genuine implications for people's lives. But if you don't understand the basics of economics, you're probably not going to understand that that's what's happening. And therefore, you're in a worse place to try and make sure that you're, you're getting your fair share of those transfers um, and of the wealth that's created. So, um, yeah. It was the last question that economists don't understand economics and so how to... Which, which is obviously partially true. Partly. But then the question is, if that's true, then why are you working so hard to force the, you know, the, the non-academics to learn economics? <laughs> Can I give a, a short example of, of just to say, I mean, so doc doctors don't know exactly how to cure every disease, but we still want people to know it's a good idea to wash their hands, right, when there's a pandemic going <laughs> Right? And in the same way, you know, it's, it's a pretty lofty ideal to say that economists should know everything before we give everyone else the basic tools that will be useful to them. Um, and so that, that would be my slightly clear response, maybe. Great. All right, let's turn uh, to the audience again. Uh, oh, yeah, lots, lots of choices. Uh, let, let's do the two over here in the corner. And ideally state your name before you ask a question. Uh, thank you, for an, thanks for the interesting talk. Um, my name is Dr. Asma. What are your thoughts on converting the currency back to gold like it used to be? And then in, in front. First of all, thank you for your talk. It was really interesting. And my name is Daniel. My question is sort of based on the one that was just asked, but I was going to ask, 
if gold is something that can only be found in certain areas and is finite, then could it still be used as a currency today like it was previously? Let's take one more, I think. Let's go ahead. Um, hi, my name is James, and my question is, what are your thoughts of the current UK economy? <laughs> On uh, converting gold, so uh, for those that you don't know, we used to have the gold standard where currency was backed by gold, but it was quickly forgotten, and we haven't done it for a while, because if you want to increase the money supply in an economy, you'd have to get more gold. And we all know that there isn't a lot of gold in the world, hence why it's got its value in the first place. Um, so it'd be very difficult uh, for us to kind of go back to it because there are lots of issues before. In terms of, I think you mentioned it was fiat. So gold is actually used for many things. We all know it's used for jewellery, it's used in electricity, it's used to make things. Um, and so it's got other uses than kind of sitting somewhere in a vault backing up currencies. Just to, to like draw like a modern equivalent as well, right? So the supply of gold is pretty kind of unchangeable through time or when it does come through, it's kind of lumpy. Um, think of Bitcoin, again, that we kind of talked about in the, the presentation. Right? Bitcoin, the whole idea behind it is it has this predictable but finite supply. So that supply can't move in order to respond to economic shocks. And therefore, when economic shocks hit, you're not able to pull the same levers that someone like the Bank of England pulls. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's pretty much a kind of a, a modern parallel um, if you think about trying to tie something just without the nice shiny thing behind it. Um, then, yeah, um, Daniel's question. I think hopefully, Daniel, that kind of gives you a bit of an answer, right? Like if we were to go back to gold, that kind of finite lumpy supply would mean it would be would be pretty tricky. Take away what you kind of hinted at a bit, which is the geopolitics of it coming from some places and not others. Like we've seen in very recent history that that can have implications. Um, did you know the third question? Yeah, the UK economy. Oh, yeah. So uh, I think we all know the UK economy has been hard, hit hard quite recently, come out of a pandemic. There's now a conflict going on in Europe. Um, and we've seen growth slow down a little. Um, but, you know, unemployment has remained quite low, um, but there are kind of headwinds are coming our way as well. Yeah, I would just say as well, like, the, um, you know, to be able to get a grip of the outlook of the UK economy, you know, the Bank of England has one view, people outside of our walls have other views. Um, in fact, you know, if you have 10 economists, you have 12 views um, on the outlook for the economy. But to be able to have that discussion and try and work it through for yourself, you need to understand these really, you know, underlying basic principles. And so, you know, we can give you our view, but the best thing you can do is try and interrogate the facts yourself, get a bit of an understanding and go out and tell us what do you think is going to happen in the UK economy? That's, that's a good achievement there, right? Okay, let me do two online questions and then we'll go back to the audience again. Uh, there's one question by Mario. And so he points out that animal spirits can uh, predict crazy things. But does that mean that when we have a general downturn that suddenly everybody becomes an animal? <clears throat> and Bernard Casey also has a very interesting question. It's kind of weird that I'm asking a question. So you got to pretend I'm Bernard now. He's sitting in the audience. So he says, <laughs> we, and I think he means all of you who are listening, not, not me. 
He says, we are homo sapiens. You are homo economics. Do we need to think like you or do you need to think like us? <laughs> Bernard, wish you were in the room. <laughs> Um, right, so on, uh, does everyone act like an animal? Um, during a crisis. During a crisis. So I think everyone acts like an animal at all times, right? So we're all really irrational creatures. Uh, and that's kind of why things like speculative bubbles or crashes happen, because people don't act rationally. And that's why it makes it really difficult as economists to forecast what's going to happen. So we think we make assumptions and we think that people behave in certain ways, but we find that they don't. Um, and in the book, we talk about some really simple ways that you might do it in your day-to-day life. Like, I know, we know we come home late from work and we see a fridge full of things, a fridge full of food, but we end up ordering a takeaway on an app instead. Or while we were writing the book, we knew having that last drink at the pub meant that we were going to like not meet our publishing deadlines the next day. Um, so we all act irrationally all the time. Uh, including during crises. Yeah, I haven't seen some of the photos of the Beanie Baby riots as well. Like some people are more animals than others at times. Um, um, so on Bernard's um, very good question um, about Homo economicus. Um, I mean, it's it's on economists to understand the world, right? Now, I don't think there is some separated, like you know, economic ideal versus um, kind of the person on the street. I think we just have to try and simplify the world a little bit because if we don't simplify it in some ways, it's just the real world. And, you know, that's pretty hard to get your head around in one go, however many general equilibrium models and fancy computer simulations you run. Um, so I think, you know, the homo economicus idea is like a, a simplification that's obviously slightly parried, often slightly parodied, but the substance is we we need to try and model the world around us in the kind of the best way. So we need to move. And economics is, we talk, again, we talk in the book about how economics has become this much broader, kind of more pluralistic discipline than it used to be, right? Although arguably if you go back to ancient Greece, it was pretty pluralistic back then. Um, but nowadays we're starting to bring in behavioral economics, psychology, sociology, history, um, you know, um, things from climate and biodiversity literatures, all of these things to try and give us a better homo economicus rather than a, a homo sapien. All right, let's go back to um, the audience over here. I think there were a couple of people in the front row who have been trying to ask a question for quite a while. Let's start over there and then. Um, what is the difference between buying with a credit card and buying with your debit card. Very good. And then I added two over here. Hello? Okay. When, when I was a kid, I was um, told by my economist teacher that um, separating monetary policy and, and fiscal policy is a good thing. What do you say to young people today when they see perhaps a disconnect between the two and they're not really working so well together? Going back to uh, Daniel, I think it's Daniel, right? Uh, his uh, question about uh, the silver and gold star, you know, he was talking about silver and gold standard. Uh, I mean, majority of the central banks uh, are basically reserving uh, 
the foreign currency. Example, Bank of England would have US dollars, Australian dollars, which is a convertible currency rather than gold. So that probably might. So they, they hedge against each, each other country. So if one country fails, at least the other country is there. Um, okay. Um, the debit versus credit card point, I feel like I've gone back to undergraduate, um, undergraduate finance. Um, so I'm going to make sure I kind of measure this carefully. Um, I mean, in kind of a very uh, kind of basic level, um, you know, when you're spending on a credit card, you're essentially taking credit and credit is increasing the supply of money in the economy. So you're taking a loan of some kind. Um, and that is generated by your bank. It creates a new asset and liability on the balance sheet. Sorry, this is getting arguably too technical, but it is increasing the amount of money in the economy when you take out money on a credit card. When I'm spending on my debit card, that is just a movement from my account to somebody else's account. So no new money has been created there. I would say the slightly more glib answer to that is probably about 15% at the moment um, in terms of what it will cost you to be doing that. Um, so that's debit versus... Oh. <laughs> um, maybe we can pick up afterwards. Um, on the separating fiscal and monetary policy, um, I mean, the separation is there for a very good reason in the sense that an independent central bank that is able to um, follow a very well-defined objective is shown, and you know, I think the last 20 odd years of inflation targeting has shown, and independent central banks have shown, it's able to very successfully kind of follow a mandate um, and take what used to be kind of a, a policy setting that would be hit by a political cycle out of the equation. Now, that's not to say that there aren't tests and questions of that arrangement. So I think questions for the next generation of economists are how you have coordination between those two arms of policy. And hopefully, some people that pick up this book will take that on as their challenge, right? Because they will start to understand the trade-offs and the structures that are implied by all of that. And they will take up that mantle to say, for the world that we're living in, is strict inflation um, or strict independence and the separation of policy and the mix of policy, right? Um, Rupert, do you want to have a go at currency? Yeah. So the Bank of England doesn't have gold to kind of back up any currency, whether that be sterling or dollar or anything else. They actually only hold it because we have vaults and it's a very safe way to keep gold. So we uh, hold gold for loads of other central banks and governments and very wealthy people. Um, and there's actually an interesting story that nothing has actually ever been stolen from the bank, but someone did actually break into the gold vaults. Um, so quite a few, I can't remember the actual year, 1800s, mid-1800s, mid 1800s, a sermon actually um, found himself uh, in the gold vaults. He'd snuck in, uh, but instead of stealing anything, he actually just left a note in the governor's office and told them to meet him uh, down in the vaults. And so the governor did. And he said, basically, I've um, broken into the Bank of England. You should cover up that hole so no one else can get it. Um, and luckily, he was rewarded uh, with some money. But unfortunately, it wasn't uh, the price of how much gold bar was worth at the time. Okay. Um, there are lots of questions online, and there is no way we can uh, deal with all of them. Uh, but I'd, I'd like to do these, the following three. So Caroline correctly points out that uh, the Bank of England and academic economists often focus on aggregates, like, you know, GDP, unemployment, 
the inflation rate and shouldn't, and that's the question, shouldn't the Bank of England focus more on the social impact of economic policy and focus on real people? Um, and related to that question is Austin, who asks whether, you know, not just the Bank of England, but also academic economists uh, shouldn't, you know, put more of a spotlight on normative economics. And then Kinshing um, asks whether quantitative easing uh, isn't that more than just printing cash. So I think we mentioned tonight that the Bank of England are trying to see what social impacts or the influence that we have on people's lives. And so we have been going out to talk to people to ask them how the Bank of England's been working for them and what their kind of what their kind of experiences of us and how we're running the economy. Um, and so we're trying in terms of like looking at different metrics, uh, the headline ones that we publish are probably aggregates, but internally we do look at other things which break it down a bit more. Yeah. Just add to that, it ties into the question we had kind of at the front about, about policy, right? There's, there is some absolutely brilliant economics looking at how monetary policy and the things we do affect different groups of society and, and impacts them. But the system we have at the moment and the system that, you know, we're trying to help people understand here is one in which we are given by dem democratically elected people, we are given a very strict and well-defined mandate is to try and keep inflation at an inflation target. Um, and that is because underneath it, there are lots of people that have spent years studying the economics of this to work out that that is a way to bring around a stable um, economy with good growth, good outcomes for, on average, most people. Now, it's not to say there aren't kind of people that get hit by it, but that structure and that kind of independent central bank following a very strict target, that's really important. And understanding that is something that hopefully this book kind of gets at because it's a really important time for that at the moment. Um, yes, there is always an important role for normative economics, I think. Um, to head that one off quickly is always very important. Um, and in terms of printing more money or like quantitative easing being more than just printing banknotes, I mean, we kind of alluded to the fact that it is way more than that, right? Like I spent three years of a PhD <laughs> digging into more of it and that just scratched the surface. Um, if you want to try and convey what it is to people, right, you know, I've, if you've got 10 seconds on a news kind of outlet or on TikTok or something to try and tell people this is a thing that we're doing and it's going to affect you, keep it simple. Get across the most important thing. Yes, we are going to put more money into the economy. So if you want to call it printed money, call it printed money. Yes, we are going to do that. When it comes your way, go out and spend it because that's the whole point of it. Right? That's, that's kind of the idea. Let's turn to people in the room again. Since we touched on irrational exuberance earlier, my question is, do you think it would be wise for the government to try and intervene to prevent irrational exuberance? Or would it not be a good idea, as since we're all humans as well, could they act irrationally under times of crisis? Um, thank you for your talk. My name is Rain, and my question is more around the sort of academic culture of economics, because there is such a there is an emphasis to think of 
think like an economist, think more of a scientific method compared to other subjects like sociology. And there's a lot of academic pressure to get into the top schools and the top economies to put more emphasis on maths. And I think this sort of emphasis on status is really shown a lot online in online forums about economics, especially towards their attitudes towards women, where they don't criticize them that much for economics, but for other things. Let me add one question uh, from the online audience. It's by Kavya. And she asked, what is the future of central bank digital currencies? Cool. All right, uh, on irrational exuberance. So as I said, I think it's really difficult for anyone to tell anyone how to react, especially during a crisis. Um, so I don't think the government can really help do much of that. But what is important is that people understand why policymakers might be implementing certain tools when they do. So like Jack mentioned earlier, printing money or quantitative easing. So the Bank of England did that during the crisis. And they did that so people would go out and spend money and it would stimulate the economy. So perhaps if people knew what, what kind of why policies are being implemented, that they would act in a way that would help them be implemented better. Um, just on the, the second one on kind of academic culture. And I think you were kind of alluding to like the maths and the, the kind of the scientific kind of... Sorry, my question was if it were to like the term of people, more normal people from the I mean, so I think it's definitely true, right? That some people say maths is not for me, or I don't, I don't really fancy doing lots of algebra. You know, um, this thing is detached from my life, this kind of abstract mathematical thing. And hopefully, you know, we've been talking today about a lot of ways in which economics is just the business of what we do every day. It's how we decide how to spend our money, how we decide how to spend our time, um, you know, whether we uh, go abroad for holidays or stay at home, whether we kind of have big families or small, all of these partly economic decisions and economics needs to, and I think is increasingly doing a lot of recognition of that. Um, there is, I'm right in thinking there's like a Marshall building somewhere around here, right? So Marshall was, Alfred Marshall was one of the great economists, right? Um, who um, was kind of very fundamental in formalizing the mathematical side of economics to kind of make it more scientifically rigorous. And as he kind of progressed through his career, he later came back to think that actually a lot of that was becoming overused, becoming more of a straitjacket and wasn't as useful in terms of actually understanding the underlying principles of economics. And he thought it should be used more sparingly. And that's a concept I think that economics as a profession is kind of coming back around full circle to um, in more recent years. The interesting thing about the Marshall Building, it's not named after the economist. <laughs> if you want to have your name on your building at uh, LSE, it says you have to give money. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a donor. But, sorry, but my dreams have been shattered. I'm just worried he or his, his son or family members in the audience, and I should... <laughs> I should correct that. But, um, okay, so I think we're getting close. We have, you know, perhaps time for this excellent question over there. Um, I'm just going to talk, well, firstly, thank you for the presentation. Um, That's very good. Um, by the way, my name is Daphne. Um, my question is, how do you think the role of 
quantitative easing has changed, especially considering the fact that it wasn't very effective in 2008 as people were unfamiliar and especially because of the low levels of confidence. So would you say it's become more effective uh, recently? I mean, I've said, I think there might be some people in Threadneedle Street that would disagree with the idea it wasn't effective in 2008. Um, but then there are probably also some in Threadneedle Street that would very strongly agree. Um, so quantitative easing is something where its effectiveness differs over time um, due to a whole range of factors. Um, and in some instances, it's the right tool, and in others, it's not. Um, central bankers, as like a profession, and economists as a profession, are learning about something new, right? In the same way that people picking up this book will learn supply and demand, economists that did that years ago are now trying to understand how something like quantitative easing works and why it works. Um, so I think we're probably still a long way from having definitive answers on all of that. Um, but yeah, I, I think one of the things that we generally have consensus of, other than that it's complicated, um, is that it's not, it's not the same through time. So there will be times when it does work really well and really strongly and other times where it works less well. Okay, so I think this is a good point to stop. Uh, two more things. One is, is that if you want to buy the book, uh, you can go outside and I think you'll be there to sign it. And then finally, is, is that join me in thanking our speakers. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.